Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. This episode is the Copyright Law and Digital Ownership panel from our Exploring the Anti-Ownership eBook Economy event. It was recorded on October 27th, 2023. The final panel of the day at any event held at a law school is going to be the legal panel. And we'll get into it right now. Before I do, I just want to thank everyone, and I will, I will thank you again at the end, but thank everyone for the conversation so far. Um, I think two things have been really fantastic. One is that everyone has come to this with an open mind and, and in good faith. Um, and the other one is that everyone recognizes that coming to someone else's view in good faith does not mean you think that they are right and does not mean you think that they are good for society, <laughs> does not mean that you support what they are doing. It just means that you are coming to it in good faith. And so I appreciate um, both everyone's ability to do the first part of that and everyone's ability to be thoughtful enough to do the second part of that and not feel like they needed to uh, back away from their strongly held feelings. So this is the final panel. This is about copyright. We're going to kind of like go deep into the copyright weeds because that's, that's the kind of people we are. This is the kind of place we are. Yeah, yeah. Shout out for copyright. Um, we've got a great panel for this. As I mentioned earlier, Jason Schultz, uh, co-author, was supposed to moderate. He is out today, unfortunately, so I will do my best. Fortunately, I just have to be a supporting player to two stars and let them sing and dance uh, and wow you with their intellectual insights. So uh, it's an easy job for me. Metab Khan is a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Um, her scholarship intersects uh, intellectual property, in particular copyright and trademark law, internet law, privacy, anti-discrimination, and law and ethics of data-driven technologies. That's the intersection of a lot of things. Um, Michelle Wu, now Michelle Wu's LinkedIn profile merely identifies her as a retired law librarian. <laughs> Which is like true, <laughs> as far as it goes. Uh, but from the hisses in the audience, I, I know that many of you know that Michelle is things in addition to a retired law librarian. Not to diminish the, the status of a retired law librarian, but many things in addition to that, including a retired associate dean of library services at Georgetown, director of the law library, and professor of law. She has written extensively about issues related to copyright and libraries. In fact, a moment ago, she was worried, well, she was actually not worried that this might, this was a, gonna be a libraries panel. And I told her that I couldn't do a library panel, but she assured me that she could just do a libraries panel on her own. So we recover either way. Uh, but this will be the, the law panel. And so the first question I wanna put to both of you is the law is really based on making analogies, right? You know, all we, we make analogies to previous cases, thinking about ownership and licensing. We've been talking about the different ways ebooks are like classic physical books and the ways in which ebooks are different. When you think about these analogies between ebooks and physical books, how do you pick apart those similarities and differences? especially when you're trying to think about the copyright parts of that. Uh, and I will let either one of you take it, but I think both of you should turn your mics on. 
Sure. So I think in terms of the historical purpose of copyright, getting information to people, I actually don't see there being much of a difference between the content in, in physical form as opposed to ebook form. In terms of the risks I understand that publishers see or that copyright owners might see, I think they see risks in the format. But that, to me, doesn't have to do with copyright. It has to do with technology. Uh, so I'd say in terms of copyright, I see them as being equivalent. I would agree with Michelle, but I also want to add that um, digital copies sometimes serve as a means to another use that copyright law then treats with you know a distinct uh, lens. So, for example, searchable databases that are built on um, copyrighted works or digital copies um, are seen as you know transformative, uh, but that potential to see the end product as transformative based on a digital copy or a digital book um, really can vary based on who is making that copy and who's making it available. And I mean, is that, is that similarity, is that a good thing? Is that a, is that a stable thing for copyright law? Or would it be better if copyright law thought of eBooks completely differently from regular books or from physical books? Um, from my perspective, the focus on getting knowledge to the public is actually a very useful focus. Regardless, it, 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 is, it exists independent of technology, and therefore the importance of that to society, the meaning of that to society, exists independent of all the changes that we'll see in technology, especially as technology changes faster and faster and faster. As long as the focus remains on ultimately the public having access to knowledge, I, actually, I think that's a good thing. Um, and to add to that, I, th I don't think it's stable, though. I, I think, as we've learned today also, there is a lot of um, mismatch in, in what users want, what patrons of a library want versus what publishers want, um, and what platforms are able to give. So it's definitely a very uh, unstable landscape, in my opinion. So I, I, I'm going to go a little bit into the weeds here with both of you. This is a, should be a comfortable place. Um, but we, when we're thinking about copyright law and e-books, we're also thinking a lot about licenses, which are copyright-related. They're also contracts. And I wonder if you think that the kind of intersection of the contract law part of this analysis and the copyright law part of this analysis helps bring clarity to it or, <laughs> or, or complicates, the, complicates it and how, how you sort the issues between being a, really a contract issue with the license as an agreement between the parties um, or a copyright issue which is tied to a kind of a larger set of equities in most cases? Um, I do not think that licensing has added uh, much to the... <laughs> it has not helped copyright. I think it's made things much more challenging. And that, the reason why is because there was supposed to be a balance in copyright, right? Uh, copyright owners get ownership of their copyright, but in exchange, the public gets access to their knowledge. They, they get to own that knowledge. They get to do things with that knowledge, such as lending the book to other people, selling that book, uh, willing that book to other people. Um, and licensing allows the copyright owner to retain all of the benefits of a monopoly while ignoring all of the responsibilities on which that monopoly was granted. So that, that's the greatest danger in terms of licensing. Um, in terms of distinguishing between what 
when, when is something a copyright issue and when is something a contract issue? I think that's what we're seeing in the courts right now, uh, is a lot of the litigation is parsing it and deciding, okay, this is actually an unconscionable license agreement or an unconscionable term, looking at it from a contract angle. Um, or the states, which if Kyle were here, he would actually tell you what uh, all the states are doing and trying to uh, dictate, <coughs> sorry, essentially reasonableness. Like if you make, if a publisher makes a book available for sale to the public, then they have to be willing to sell it to a library as well. Uh, libraries have to retain preservation rights. So there are actions on the preservation end. But I would also say there are actions on the copyright end as well. And none of these are really entirely independent of each other. I would say that they move together. But on the copyright end, we have activities such as CDL, which is controlled digital lending, where libraries are, they're still buying physical versions of their books. And then what they do is they digitize them and they use the digital copy in place of the print. If they buy one copy, they're still just using one copy. It's just changed in format. It is still protected by DRM, or it's, I shouldn't say is still. It is protected by DRM so that it cannot circulate simultaneously any more than the number of copies that they own. So we are seeing activities on both fronts in terms of contract as well as copyright. I don't think that there are very many instances where I would say it's entirely one or the other. It's essentially we're going to look at, look at this and try to tackle it from all aspects that we can tackle it from. I can speak to the fair use aspects of it yeah, please. and how um, the determination of whether something is fair use before making a decision about access or preservation or, you know, limiting access or taking down content, I think has uh, ended up being placed on the entity that doesn't really have control over those contractual terms or over those access terms. So if a, uh, if a platform um, places restrictions on how you can access a book or places restrictions in that licensing agreement about what you can do um, or on how long you have access to it. Um, the burden to then see how that's implemented and then how that plays out in the field with uh, you know a particular person uh, using that ebook um, is placed on on the middle person who does not have that much agency. Um, and so I think Overall, in the balance, as Michelle said, um, the balance then gets skewed against um, what the goals of a copyright are, in my opinion, uh, which is, uh, you know, to allow those fair uses, but we, we don't even get to the first steps of uh, being able to do that. But on the inverse, we, we are also seeing, um, you know, in the context of AI, for instance, uh, we are seeing that uh, some websites and web publishers, like news websites, are placing... Uh, restrictions in their terms of conditions, saying that you cannot use this material to train LLMs. Um, although that question of whether training is fair use or not is undetermined, uh, placing such a broad restriction even within those terms of conditions also risks um, people losing out access um, in other ways that um, would be harmful to fair use. When you see those sort of terms-based restrictions, What is this? What is the scope of their enforceability? Like, what is your instinct on how effective those types of restrictions are against the kind of uses, specifically that we would think of as traditional fair use uses? I think that is to be determined, especially as we see the recent lawsuits play out. Um, we'll see 
um, you know, we are already seeing companies saying that, you know, there is already an existing licensing um, market for our works that uh, data set curators are not using. So as they show that they've taken the steps to mitigate or prevent the use of their works without permission, I think the defendants or the data set curators on the other side will have, uh, you know, less uh, room to argue that there's fair use. Um, and so the existence of these terms, I think, might then, you know, uh, strengthen arguments um, that uh, plaintiffs are trying to use. So I think the chances of uh, a library or someone complying, if, even an individual complying with uh, the license terms, are one, if they've read the terms, <laughs> which is always a question. Uh, unlikely. Unlikely. Uh, but if they have read the terms, it is more actually, I think, about the power dynamic than anything else. And what I found in libraries is if you are at a T14 library, you actually do have more T14 law library, you have more bargaining power than someone outside that T14. Um, so I think in terms of compliance, in terms of what the publishers are trying to accomplish, and when I say publishers, I don't mean all publishers. I do understand that there are a whole range of them. Uh, but in some of the more restrictive license terms, such as uh, getting access to our users' data or um, prohibiting, prohibiting data mining, or um, prohibiting interlibrary loan, I think a lot of whether or not those licenses have power comes down to the bargaining power that the library has, whether they have the ability to, to cross that out of the license. And so, so the power is in the license formation, moment of license formation, not in the moment of license enforcement. That's correct. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I think there's some power. Like it, it can happen in either place, but I think a lot of it happens during formation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I wonder, you know, a couple of times in other panels, people have talked about these like perpetual license agreements that various libraries have have negotiated. And I wonder, you know, when we as you two are wearing your, your copyright lawyer hat. What are the meaningful ways and, I, you know, without if you know the specifics, that's fine. If you don't, I'm happy to take a kind of general answer here. But what are the meaningful ways in which a perpetual access license is different from actual ownership. Like what we've heard a couple of people refer to, like, you know, this, this, these achieve a lot of our, check a lot of boxes, right? Achieve a lot of what we want to achieve. Um, where, what are situations where those are going to fall short? Where's the space going to be between ownership and those kind of perpetual licenses? Um, so I think some of them have already been mentioned. In terms of when you don't own an item, number one, you lose all privacy. If, if the item does not belong to you, then whoever does own it gets to track that data. Um, so that's one big difference. The other is you can't always tell what's going to happen with the publisher, whether they go out of business, whether they um, divest some titles, they merge with another. You don't know what's going to happen. So if you don't own that item, um, you can't guarantee that your users will have access to it. You also can't guarantee that even if your users have access to it, it will remain the same. Because the person who owns that work can actually change that work, whether it's updating a typo, which seems like a minor issue, or actually changing the text, or retracting the book entirely. So, I mean, I think there are costs to not owning the book. Um, same with issues like, if I'm a library, I can't resell that item. Right. I can't, if the library goes away, I'm not saying libraries go away often, but if the library all of a sudden has to shut down, it also cannot give 
that item to another library to own, depending on the license agreement. Uh, but all of those come with ownership, and all of them can disappear with license agreement. Do you, do you have a sense of... Do you have a sense of how often any of those things are or are not included in those perpetual license agreements, right? Because some of those things are, would be easier to, to deal with in the agreement than others. Do you have a sense of the kind of scale of how often those are in and how often those are out? Sure. So in, the, in terms of license agreements that I've seen, in the majority of license agreements, the default version does not contain any of those. Now, if you try to negotiate with the publisher, in many cases, especially if you're talking to an academic publisher they're, or an indie publisher, they're more willing to engage with changing that license agreement. Uh, but if you're talking to a pretty large publisher, that's highly unlikely. I mean, adding to that, I think that not only is your bundle of rights um, very limited if you're licensing instead of buying, but I think that... Um, there's also this perpetual burden placed on the, the licensee to comply with the terms that might, uh, you know, be an, an obstacle to them actually making uses or even implementing, uh, you know, um, models of borrowing that are fair and that don't run into those, you know, restrictions that um, libraries with ebook collections are currently facing. So um, if it's a, it's a, you know, a smaller library or, you know, not as well resourced as a top uh, university's library or, uh, you know, somebody, as Michelle said, who doesn't have as much bargaining power, then I think that that burden is, um, you know, already uh, something that's showing a power asymmetry and that because of this arrangement, they would have to continue to spend resources on uh, enforcing terms, on uh, making sure they're complying, and also on deciding what, uh, what is fair or not when that fair use question comes up ine inevitably. Yeah, I often wonder with those, with those agreements, right, it's for anything you can anticipate today, it's at least potentially possible to kind of put language in there to address it. But you're, to your point of the kind of unforeseeability of the future, right? Like forever is a long time. Copyright term is almost forever. It's a long time. Um, if you have the ownership, you have the ability to respond to unforeseen things. If you don't have the ownership, that may be where you discover that where you thought you had everything you need, suddenly you don't. Um, Michelle, I actually wanted to follow up. You mentioned that sort of, you know, a T14 library may have bargaining power that other libraries don't. What's that library? What's the term you use? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, could you clarify? Sorry. So T14 library in law libraries, <laughs> there are U.S. News and World Report ranks that the libraries or the law schools are ranked at. And the T14 is considered the top tier of law schools. So if you're at a library at one of those top 14 law schools, you're a T14 library. And why 14? I, I have no idea. Because <laughs> somebody, somebody who was 12 was, like, mad about being left out, I'm sure. Um, is, the, is the nature of their bargaining power primarily because of the budgets that they have? Or is there some sort of other kind of, like, social cachet that allows them to push back? Right. So I, I actually think it's more... Um these are, in law schools, the students at T14 schools are the people that these publishers want to be using their works. They, they want, right. So, so there is more pressure on the publishers to get these works in front of the students at these schools. Uh, I'm not saying this is fair. I'm just saying that's just how, how I've seen it work. 
so it's 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 almost it's almost independent of their their budgets. It's just a kind of a prestige thing that the publishers want to be in various libraries. Is that a dynamic where that is similar outside of the law school library context where there is a kind of like prestige element? This would be a better question for the last panel, but I'll ask you now. Um, like a prestige element or is it is it there's something specific about the kind of consumer, the, the future customers of law students that is different than other kinds of library patrons? So I would say I've seen it in all academic libraries. Mm -hmm. I could not speak to public libraries. I don't know if there, there's any um, similar equivalent, but within across all academic libraries, I've seen that. So sometimes when I describe this project to people, I say it's about understanding digital ownership of eBooks. And the reason we're interested in eBooks is, first of all, because books are important and eBooks are important, but also because it's an entry point into thinking about the ownership of digital goods more broadly. And I wonder, I mean, I'm sure both of you have thought about these questions beyond eBooks. And I wonder when you, when you were having those thoughts, how, how good of a representation eBooks are in that larger analysis, or are there things about eBooks that are kind of idiosyncratic to eBooks, and so they don't help you understand what it might mean to own music or movies or other cultural goods digitally? Um, I do think the analysis is much more complex when you're dealing with digital works, not only because there's much greater utility in it in terms of uh, digital books can be read aloud automatically. They can be technically translated automatically. So there's much more promise in digital works, I think, than in a static print work. Uh, there's also, I do recognize, even though I, I still think we should own our works, I do recognize that for copyright owners, there is a perceived greater risk. Um, I'm not sure the risk is as great as has been described, because I've seen that same fear crop up with other technologies, such as the DVR, such as the photocopier. Um, and in every single case, there has been tremendous fear that there's going to be rampant privacy uh, or piracy. Um, and there usually, I'm not going to say there isn't piracy. I'm going to say it's usually not as dramatic as the publisher's fear. And there are usually new um, income avenues that are opened up at, simultaneously. So what, so what I'll say is I do see the digital form as being unique, that it has both promise and risks that you're not going to see in physical forms, um, and that we have to take those into account when we design solutions. But I don't think that should stop us from actually finding a way to design a solution that works for all of us. I come to this question by looking at how books are used. So, for example, take uh, the, a university setting, typically. Um, books are used maybe for the excerpts or for readings or to create reading packets. Or even the, the act of collecting chapters or uh, assigning a book or assigning specific excerpts can on its own have its own expression. It might be from, you know, books that are banned in a particular context or books that are controversial. And even including them in your syllabus is, uh, you know, an expressive act on its own. Um, and, and so 
when we look at the ways that books are used and the the amount that is used and the purpose for what it uh, for which um they're used um and then on top of that add the digital format to it and the the ownership structures to it the the picture becomes very complicated um if you were just going to the library um as a student and picking a book and you know using a quotation critiquing it for an essay that's different from you know a professor um including them in a holistic reading packet which is then reproduced or internal copies are created uh for the students um and if there it includes digital copies and then licensing terms it becomes uh you know difficult to navigate on a day-to-day basis um but it also might change then the fair use calculus like how much of a book was used how um what were the licensing terms attached to the ebook that was used um was the book used despite the fact that there was a licensing agree- uh, uh, market existing for it and uh, the book was used you know in its physical format and a copy was made without seeking a license first so all of these questions come up because of the the you know how commonplace ebooks have become and how much libraries might choose to include physical books versus ebooks um and it all depends on how what's happening on the ground i think following up on that do do you think the the kind of day-to-day use of ebooks is different enough from the way that we use digital again songs or movies or photographs or whatever else that from a copyright standpoint it's worth thinking about them as somewhat unique or is their use like completely analogous across the board to all of these different types of media. I think it's distinct enough and it's dynamic enough such that we see so many different uses uh of this text form um being used across the board um and you know coming back to AI I think the chatbots and language models are this very unique manifestation of a source that is based on text. And so I think that having, you know, this particular kind of media and the rules attached to it uh do pose specific questions. And I think I would say I don't actually see the content of books being unusual in terms of how they're used or how they can be consumed because music can be done the same way. It's just it's just an audible version of but it still has words it still has notes so it's analyzed differently but i still think that if you're looking at an ai if they want if you ask uh, an ai assuming it can do this can you write a song actually no it can can you write a song in the style of this person uh, or this artist it can do that and i think that's very similar to what you see uh, happening with books as well so i i think there are similar i i wouldn't call it completely distinct mm-hmm. i think every subject matter within copyright does have some aspects that make them different but it's within the subject matter not within the digital form of that subject matter but but setting aside ai and sort of large scale analysis when you think about the other ways that people are using this media do books seem to be unique maybe because of their the way that fair use people the fair uses maybe how common it is or however to think about it or is it i guess how how useful is it as an entry point to this larger questions about digital ownership or is it such an outlier that it's it's worth knowing and it's worth spending time uh, a day thinking about but it's a pretty unique set of circumstances um So this is a hard question simply because I understand that books are they have so many different uses they're used for reference checking uh they're used um read aloud story like story time there's so many ways that you can use a book that I I can see that there are like unique aspects of it but what I will say that 
in terms of CDL, controlled digital lending, I've been asked about CDL for things other than books. And I actually see its applicability. Like, I think it applies in every instance. It's, yep. it's not like I would separate out ebooks. So that, that's why it's difficult for me to answer. Mm -hmm. I do think that ebooks have, that books, not just ebooks, books have tremendous utility in all sorts of different ways that you're not going to see with the other types of works. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not sure that I would say the copyright principles are different. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes sense. So, so I want to ask you, one of the things that actually we opened with was by, by highlighting, and, and we've talked about this throughout the day, how when you're in a world of ebooks and digital goods, you have this sort of platform layer that is engaged in the transaction and engaged in, in you know, transaction, not necessarily monetary. From a copyright standpoint, how, how much, if any, complication does the existence of the platform layer add to the way you're thinking about these questions? Um, I, I think that the, the intermediary element of access to books has evolved. Um, I, I guess libraries are kinds of in, intermediaries in a way because they've facilitated access on a mass scale for anyone, and they've been like this public resource um, for centuries. Um, platforms, I think, that have the potential to do that but have not been doing that. And um, I, I guess having that, having these specific ownership structures um, and restrictions has made platforms serve a very different kind of role. Um, and in turn, copyright law has been difficult to apply in particular fair use, which is what I think about. Um, I think that the ways, the, the model uh, through which, uh, you know, more physical intermediaries like libraries have functioned is very different from the ways that digital intermediaries like platforms function. And, and in turn, it affects uh, the public's ability to make fair uses. And so I think to answer your question, copyright rules do take different forms when we look at two different kinds of intermediaries. Um, I think that adding distributors to the equation for copyright causes two main effects. Um, the first is it gives a second entity, so not just the copyright owner, but now the distributor, reason to leverage copyright to breach our privacy. So that's one. Okay. Uh, the, the second major change is anytime you introduce into the copyright chain um, a new profit interest that acts against the interests of whether it's the public or of authors or of indie publishers, right, of everyone else who is not making a lot of money off of this transaction, it is a very, very natural thing. If, you, if your bonus, if your stock price um, goes up, because you're making money for your company, you are going to be incentivized to benefit your company financially over every other interest. Whether that interest is an author, whether that's of the public, it's just a very, very natural incentive. And now you don't just have the copyright owner. You have the copyright owner and the distributor who are both incentivized to maximize their self-interest over the interests of everyone else involved. Uh, so that's not a great thing for copyright. So... One of the ways I was a bad moderator this morning is that I, I teased audience questions and then we ran out of time for audience questions. <laughs> so I'm going to avoid that problem now by uh, opening the floor to audience questions with hopefully plenty of time to get to at least one or two. So um, if people have copyright e-questions, let's bring them on. Let's do it. 
You're close, you're close to a mic. I'm close to a mic. So there are two threads that I've seen come up throughout the day. The first, on the one hand, it sounds like we need more players to create a more competitive market. But on the other hand, we need a centralized marketplace for all of these players to come together and gather. Do you believe that copyright law has a place in helping us strike this balance or other laws, or do you think that's going to necessarily be like a business strategy decision? Um, I'm not sure it's copyright law proper that will help us strike that balance, but I do actually think there is a way to strike that balance. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I do think that all of the efforts that are ongoing right now, whether it's state trying to... Uh, do state legislation, federal legislation, antitrust, like all of those efforts I think are fantastic and keeps the pressure on trying to maintain the balance. Uh, but I will also say this. There is a part of me that thinks that we are playing a really bizarre game of whack-a-mole because of the very, like the profit incentives are always going to be there. So anytime we close the door on one profit-making strategy, the incentive is not to be more reasonable. The incentive is let's cut another door. So, so there is a part of me that worries that, like, the, uh, unless we change the incentive, this is just going to continue. Um, I can't tell where it's going to continue. I can't tell what action is going to happen next. But I can tell you most certainly that there is going to be another effort to use copyright in a manner that it wasn't intended to be used in. So what can we do? Um, I do think that we have to change incentives. I don't think that's going to happen by the players themselves simply because of these natural market incentives, right? I don't think it will happen in government. I think we should still try. But the reason I don't think it will happen within legislation is simply because we have to persuade the majority of lawmakers who have a personal interest um, in re-election and their campaigns are actually funded by the people who don't want change. So I think legislation is hard. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that it's hard. But I do think there remains a path available to us that we can explore that has not yet been explored. Um, and this is it. So collectively, when we talk about copyright, we often talk about copyright as being the starting position and of the exceptions, such as fair use, being the limitations on copyright. But I think what a lot of us really forget is that copyright itself was meant to be a limitation on a natural right or a series of natural rights. And that is the natural right to consume, use, and share knowledge. There is a lot of that natural right, I believe, that still exists that copyright never spoke to. And so I think it's not preempted and can be brought in a lawsuit. So let me give you an example. Um, in controlled digital lending, I think there is an equitable right, maybe you wouldn't call it natural, an equitable right to um, reasonably use information that is legitimately acquired for the purpose for which it was acquired. How does this differ from fair use? One is, it is not a defense. I'm not saying I infringed on copyright, and this is my justification for it. It is actually saying that a broad read of copyright infringes on the right for me to reasonably use information that I have legitimately acquired. It is a public right. It is not the right of the copyright owner. Um, for everyone out there who thinks I'm crazy, which I would not blame you if, if, if you did, <laughs> Um, all I will say is this, is I would ask everyone to suspend their disbelief and do three things, all right? The first is to look at the history of copyright. Um, go back and think about this. In a democracy, in a republic, in a democratic republic, regardless of how you define the United States, um, it is not a legitimate purpose of government to protect 
the private profit interests of less than 1% of the population over the occupations of every other occupation, right? Um, that is not a legitimate government interest. However, it is a legitimate government interest, if you go back and take a look at the correspondence, to say we want information to get to our public. So if you take a look at the correspondence, uh, this was at the time of the Continental Congress, you'll find that there were authors who actually said, we have written some works. We're not willing to release them to the public because we know that they're going to be taken by publishers. Publishers are going to make all the money, and they're never going to pay us anything at all. That is what justifies the government protecting copyright. It was to ensure that authors felt safe enough to release their works to the public um, to actually give them to us. So it wasn't protecting the private interests of the authors. It was to ensure that knowledge made it to all of us. That is the purpose of copyright. Uh, and I would say that goes to the natural, um, natural right to knowledge. All right. The second thing I would ask everyone to do is this. Think about all of the uses that we make of copyright every single day. Um, and we do not pay the author. Uh, and you can think of fan fiction. You can think of um, uh, piano recitals, uh, right? You can think of mixtapes, which I realize dates me tremendously. <laughs> but it is still a good example because in the aggregate uh, and how it was used in the 80s and the 90s, I would argue there was a market impact. Now, I don't know if that market impact was good or negative, but I would actually say the number of people making mixtapes could arguably affect uh, whether or not people purchased uh, those albums or those songs. Um, and then the third thing I want you to do uh, while you're suspending your disbelief is to consider what the effect on, on, on uh, profit makers would be if only one judge agrees that there is a natural right to knowledge and that a broad reading of copyright infringes on that natural right to reasonably use information legitimately acquired. All it takes is one case to show to publishers who are pursuing a profit motive above all else um, that there is a risk to not behaving reasonably. The risk is not just that they'll lose on this one case. It's that everyone else will bring similar suits on similar natural rights, and the publishers will lose a lot more than they would lose if they behaved reasonably. Um, I am not saying that this is necessarily a winning strategy. It is a very, very hard one to raise equitable issues or natural law issues with the courts, but it has been done. Uh, and I would say that this is just one additional way, in addition to all the tools and all the efforts that everyone is making right now, to try to reassert the balance in copyright and to change the entire incentive for the people who are profit-driven, to make them consider there is a risk, there is a public interest, there is a public right. Copyright is not merely an author right. It is not merely a publisher right. It is a public right. Thank you. All right, well, we will, we'll, we will unsuspend disbelief uh, for... Potentially, I mean, you know, for the next question, if anyone has another question. I'd like to ask, can ebook ownership exist without DRM? I think that um, making copies in the digital world is very easy and also creates these risks that don't exist in the physical world in the same way. And so we do need some sort of 
uh, safeguards that wouldn't allow unfettered uh, use uh, and duplication of digital materials. Um, but that does not mean that I agree or condone like the, the DRM regimes that presently exist. I think there are a lot of problems with those regimes and that they are overly restrictive, uh, but I do think that we need some sort of restriction. Um, I think there are certainly ways, and I think that there are um, some distributors that are experimenting with this already. There are ways through technology that you can balance out. Uh, you can not have DRM but still protect ownership rights. So, for example, I think some companies have been exploring blockchain where you can... Uh, where you can <laughs> I know, I know. There are other issues with blockchain. Right, right. So, so the suggestions I'm about to mention... Yeah, it's going to be a great solution for a blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are, I think there are technological solutions. All of them have costs. I won't say they don't have costs, but DRM also has costs. So it's really a matter of weighing them. So another example is you can use watermarking and you can use digital footprints, for lack of a better term, but just not make that information available for... Um, available to the publishers... Unless, for example, if you can track where an item has been, if you can find 500 copies of that same item, like you can see that it has come from the same place, then that gives a cause of action for the copyright owner to say, okay, we're going to do discovery and see if we can track it down. But this, I mean, it becomes very, very complex when you think about how this could be done while not infringing on privacy, everyday privacy. But I'm not, but I do think that technological solutions exist out there. Um, it's just that we don't, we haven't been focusing our efforts on that. The effort has been, we're just going to shut down ownership entirely. We're not just, we're not even going to try to see if there might be another technological solution that could protect our rights while still protecting the consumer. Um, so I, I, I think it's possible. We just haven't fully explored it yet. I'm going to use my, my moderator's prerogative to answer that question and say absolutely. Um, and I think there are two data points that suggest that the answer is obviously yes. Um, the first is, and, and we were talking to some people yesterday, I apologize for people who heard this rant yesterday, but um, the website Bandcamp sells DRM-free, there's no license agreement music, and it just like does it. And the, the, the sun has not fallen from the sky. Um, and so there's an entire, it was like tens of millions of dollars in, in turnover that is just selling digital goods as a digital good with no license at all. Uh, the second is, I have yet to see anyone who can show me that including a watermark or DRM or anything else uh, eliminates that work from the world of piracy. Um, you can, you can find pirated copies of all of these works, even if they have DRM. And so I don't quite understand what the value of the restriction is. Anyway, rant over. Um, we've got two minutes left. If, so, if anyone has a question that is short to ask and short to answer, <laughs> this is the moment you've been waiting for. <laughs> if you don't, that's okay as well. All right, this is, a, this is a challenge. It's not a question, it's a comment. Oh, no, 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 Question, no, no, this is question time. Questions end with a, with a question mark, not a period. That's a rule of Engelberg Center. Uh, anyone have a question? Why is Michelle so awesome? Why is Michelle so awesome? It's just the way she was born. <laughs> uh, all right.
right, so in that case, I will uh, first of all thank my panelists so much for joining us. Uh, please join me and give them a round of applause. Um, I also want to thank, thank, every, thank all of you for coming. Thank, uh, I also, I don't think I, I mentioned Kyle K. Courtney was supposed to be on this panel. He's not feeling well. Uh, he would have brought all sorts of insight, and so we will track him down in the future. I also want to thank Claire Woodcock for doing all of the lifting of like organizing this event. So thank you, Claire. And Katrina Sutherland, who is outside, for doing all of the lifting to make this event the operational work. So please uh, thank her on the way out. And then the last thing I will say is, it is a beautiful day in New York. Um, and so I hope that the early end time of this event in the grand scheme of the afternoon does not break your hearts. I hope you get an opportunity to enjoy the day. If you are wondering to yourself, maybe you don't want to be outside the entire time, is there a bar nearby that opens around four? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, one of them is called Val de Nuit. It's on West 4th, about two blocks from here. It is possible that other people who have a similar question walking out of here uh, may find themselves over there. But again, it doesn't even open until four. And so, uh, you know, you can go make some mistakes before then. But with that, Thank you all so much. Thank you for being part of this discussion, this event. I hope to see you again. The Engelberg Center Live podcast is a production of the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law, and Policy at NYU Law and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Our theme music is by Jessica Batke and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license.